welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try and join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter, on Instagram at Talking Theo, and share on social media. Thanks for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What are the different voices in Scripture across the Old and New Testaments on war and conflict? How can a war ever be just? And why does the just war tradition still matter today? How does the story of Anglicans living in a time of war provide a cautionary tale for the church in today's world? And how has the relative peace in Western Europe since World War II led to a functional pacifism in many churches? And how does the current conflict in Ukraine challenge that view? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Canon Professor Mike Snape. Mike is the inaugural Michael Ramsey Professor of Anglican Studies at Durham University and an ecumenical lay canon of Durham Cathedral. He's written extensively on church history, religion and war. And his forthcoming book, A Church Militant, Anglicans and Armed Forces from Queen Victoria to the Vietnam War, will be published by Oxford University Press this July. And our title today is, What Can History Teach Us About a Christian Response to War? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Mike Snape, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you, Philip. It's great to be here. Thank you. Mike, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about yourself. What's been your journey to your present role at Durham? Well, I studied history and theology at the University of Birmingham with the intention at the time of becoming a Jesuit. That never transpired, as it were. I became interested in church history at Birmingham, and I was particularly inspired by my personal tutor at the time, Professor Hugh McLeod, who's a, a leading historian of modern Christianity and who is a devout Quaker. And after studying my bachelor's degree, I went on to write a PhD on the Church of England in 18th century Lancashire. And my first job was at West Hill College of Higher Education, which was then part of the Selyoke College Federation. West Hill had a strong free church tradition, and I worked alongside Anglican, Salvationist, Presbyterian and Muslim colleagues. So it was a very rich mix. And I think I really benefited from that interaction. And one of the most memorable modules I taught, which reinforced my interest in the theme of religion and conflict, was a module on religion and politics in Northern Ireland. I then, from West Hill, transferred to the Department of Theology and Religion at Birmingham University, poacher turned gamekeeper, you might say. And then from the theology department, I moved on to history and was asked by my old supervisor, Hugh McLeod, to write a volume on war and religion in modern Britain for a series he was editing for Routledge. And that really began my writing in this particular subject area. I ended up producing two volumes. I got so interested rather than the one that was actually asked for in the first instance. 
And that research brought me into the orbit of the Royal Army Chaplains Department, an organisation which I've worked with for more than 20 years now. And once again, I found it hugely enlightening and enriching to work in an ecumenical and multi-faith environment, which is very much the environment of the Army Chaplains Department these days. On the strength of that connection, I wrote their official history to mark their bicentenary. And I'm now the official historian of British Army Chaplaincy. My focus on the British Isles throughout all of this work uh, inevitably meant that I worked mainly, but not exclusively, on the history of the Anglican churches, and particularly the Church of England. And on the strength of that kind of background and my research in 18th century English religious history, I applied for the Ramsey Chair in 2015, and that is what eventually brought me to Durham. And I've been here as Professor of Anglican Studies and as an ecumenical lay canon of Durham Cathedral for seven years now. So today we're thinking about that topic of religion and conflict, faith and war, however we want to put it. And it's a topic that's brought particularly close to mind by the current war in Ukraine. And we'll come on to that in due course. But I'd like to take us back, first of all, right back to the kind of original source documents and, if you like, make a journey towards the present as we do so. To start with the world of the Bible, therefore, what are the main different voices around war and conflict that we encounter in Scripture? Well, there's often a strong dichotomy drawn between Old Testament perspectives on war and conflict and New Testament perspectives. So, for example, if we were to take the history of ancient Israel, we'll see that it's one of constant conflict from Abraham through to the Maccabees. And if we think, for example, of the conquest of Canaan, whether it's related in Joshua or in Judges, uh, you know, we're presented with a history of what is very largely a military campaign. If we think of King David, of course, he was the ideal warrior king of ancient Israel. And even if we think of the exile and the return from Babylon, we're brought to face the fact that basically both of these events are the consequence of military campaigns. So so really, just using these examples, we can see that the history of Israel is full of the history of war and conflict. And of course, this is reflected in other parts or passages of the Old Testament. If we think of Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. And obviously, if we think of psalmody, we think of the book of Psalms, they are replete with military imagery. So, for example, if we think of the 91st Psalm, which has always been cited like the 23rd Psalm, as very much a soldier's psalm, we're confronted with the words, thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flieth by day. And again, if we think of Psalm 144, it commences, blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. So, you know, the Old Testament, you might say, is replete with military history, with military imagery, as it were. And we mentioned that dichotomy, which is often drawn between the Old and the New Testaments. And if we think of the Sermon on the Mount and we think of blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew chapter five, and also in the same chapter, resist not evil, 
but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. So if we're confronted with the Sermon on the Mount, and if we think of Jesus's passion and Jesus's words to one of his disciples, all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And also if we think of Jesus's words to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. And of course, if we think of the events of the Passion, we're confronted with the figure of Jesus who is scourged, tortured and crucified by Roman soldiers who diced for his clothes at the foot of the cross and who were moreover also detailed to stand guard at his tomb. So we have a very negative portrayal of the military profession in that passage in in that kind of critical scene, as it were, of the New Testament, Christ's death and resurrection. So it all seems pretty damning. But on the other hand, what we have to do is bear in mind some other themes that emerge in the New Testament as well. If we think of the ministry of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist is approached by soldiers and asked what they can do, he instructs them to do violence to no man. He doesn't recommend a change of employment as And I think also, if we think of Jesus's curing of the centurion's servant, we're presented with a very powerful perspective into the faith of the serving soldier, even though the centurion is obviously not Jewish. And Jesus says, I've never seen such faith in Israel. And this is an incredible affirmation of this man's faith. Also, I think if we Think of the scene of the centurion at the foot of the cross. Truly, this man was the son of God. And we also think of the role of Cornelius in the Acts of the Apostles, etc. We're not presented with an unrelentingly negative portrayal of the military profession at all. And I think also if we think of what Paul uses in Ephesians when he urges Ephesians to put on the whole armour of God, the military metaphor, etc. is still there. It's not entirely removed from the imagery of the book of Psalms. So if we look at scripture, although the New Testament is often couched in a very pacifist light, I would I would want to qualify that. You're describing to us, therefore, a, a more complex and nuanced picture than simply a kind of artificial dichotomy between Old Testament and New Testament. You're saying there's greater subtleties there within the New Testament in particular that you've articulated for us. How were those nuances and subtleties received and interpreted as that the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, was read and understood by Christians in its early stage of development. I'm thinking in the first centuries, which obviously saw a move from Christianity as a kind of unofficial religion to to being a state religion after Constantine in the fourth century. I think there can be no doubt that in the early history of the church, there is a definite animus against military service, Christians undertaking military services. And it's very easy to put what we might call a pacifist gloss on that position. And indeed, scholars in the 19th and 20th century and the historic peace churches have done that. But if we were to look, for example, at Tertullian writing in the early third century, he famously said that Jesus's words to his disciple about putting up their sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, Tertullian said, well, in saying these words, Jesus disarmed every Christian. If we look at the context of that particular perspective that Tertullian is bringing to the question of Christians and military service, he's actually writing about idolatry and the prevalence of idolatry in the Roman army 
in the first, second, third, up to the fourth centuries with the conversion of Constantine. So there was an entrenched pagan culture involving sacrifice to pagan gods in the Roman army. And we're all aware from the age of St. Paul, the era of St. Paul, of the problematics which that posed for Christians. So in actual fact, there's ample reason to think that the main animus in the early church against service in the Roman army arose from misgivings and hostility towards idolatry rather than actually taking up arms. And I think there's some very interesting evidence from the early history of the church, which illustrates that we're actually dealing with a long time span. Obviously, there are three centuries between the conversion of Constantine and the ministry of Christ, as it were. And in those three centuries, the Roman army and the Roman Empire evolved enormously. And there's no doubt that large numbers of Christians over that period actually ended up serving in the Roman army. There's a famous story associated with the late second century Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. He was campaigning against the barbarians in the east and there was a shortage of water. It was feared that the army might simply die of thirst in this wilderness and Apparently, Christian soldiers of one particular legion prayed and there was a there was a downpour and the legion of which they were a part was known from there on in as the thundering legion. Now, this really, again, illustrates that there is a far more complex picture to the relationship between Christian faith, war and military service than than is often assumed. And I think one of the things that we must bear in mind is that even those who protested against the idea of Christian serving, were protesting because it was so common. You don't protest against a problem which isn't present. And I think that in that regard, we have to bear in mind that when Constantine converts to Christianity and when the empire is Christianized, we're not dealing with a radical disjuncture in terms of Christianity's relationship with the military. But rather an evolution. An evolution, very much so. So after Constantine, the church worked out an approach to war called the just war theory. Can you explain, Mike, what this is and how it's been used to endorse or critique different armed conflicts over the years? Yeah, I mean, this is a obviously a huge subject as it deals with a, a moral tradition that, that spans 1600 years, basically. But essentially, the development of just war theory was really a function of the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity, which begins with Constantine. And importantly, of course, because we haven't mentioned that, Constantine's victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312, his vision of the Cairo and in this sign conquer, as it were, and that victory which gave Constantine the impetus for basically propagating Christianity throughout the institutions of the empire. So so basically this is really a response to the fact that the empire was becoming christianized and christians had begun to very much adopt and inherit civic responsibilities. And of course one of those responsibilities was the defense of the state, the empire of which they were a part. And beginning with Ambrose but archetypally associated with Saint Augustine was the development of the idea of the just war. How can christians legitimately take up arms, legitimately discharge this obligation. And Augustine came up with three conditions for a just war. And he always viewed, and I think this is extremely important to stress, just war is not about belligerence. 
just war theory and its imperatives, which it addresses, is rooted in the Christian duty of love, the Christian obligation to protect those who can't protect themselves. And Augustine fundamentally came up with three criteria for a just war, and these were um, just cause, which you might interpret, for example, just to cite one illustration, as self-defense. Um, there's also the question of the sanction of due authority, legitimate sanctions, so not everybody can sanction a, a just war. It has to be a properly recognized source of authority. And also right intention is important. So the act of going to war is not something which is a ploy, a means to another end, as it were. It is something which is in and of itself legitimate and good. So these were the three principles which Augustine devised, which have generally been associated with going to war. And in the course of the Middle Ages, and very much associated with, with Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, just war theory was refined and other criteria were added. So, for example, a just war cannot be waged using intrinsically evil methods. Um, a just war has to be proportionate in terms of what it seeks to achieve and how it achieves it. And thirdly, it accepts that while evil effects may be attendant on well-intentioned actions, those evil effects must not in themselves be intended. So it's this idea of double effect. And obviously what we're dealing with are very broad and one can say very malleable principles, but they are attempt an attempt, I would say, to provide some kind of compass, some kind of moral compass for that perennial question of how Christians should respond to situations of armed conflict, to acts of naked aggression, to uh, responding to acts of grave injustice when no other means are actually available to redress those injustices. Your new book explores the contribution of Anglicanism worldwide to the armed forces of the English-speaking world between 1870 and 1970, arguably the most violent period of human history. Give us a sense of what the key features are about the relationship between Anglicanism, that is the Church of England and its affiliate churches throughout the world, the relationship between Anglicanism and war during this very turbulent period. And I guess what are the key insights that are relevant for the wider Christian community and for further denominations? Well, to address the importance of the Anglican communion in this era, I think it's important to, to point out that during the history of the late 19th and the first seven decades of the 20th century, or as, at least as long as the empire, so to speak, remained in being, the largest Christian tradition within that empire was the Anglican tradition. So Anglicanism was an expansive force in this period, and the British Empire was one of the world's dominant military powers. The reality was that Anglicanism had a very strong ethno-cultural identity, as well as a strong ecclesiastical identity. And fundamentally, Anglicans could be relied upon in both world wars, for example, to come forward most readily 
to answer the summons of king and country or king and empires. And also an important aspect of the Anglican moral tradition is the acceptance, the implicit acceptance of just war theory. If you look at the 37th article of religion of 1563, the English version, that is, it says that it is legitimate for the Christian man at the order of the magistrate to bear weapons and serve in the wars. The Latin version, interestingly enough, mentions just wars. So there is a strong sense, even within the Anglican moral tradition, that when the magistrate makes this decision, then it is time to step up. And it's easy to, at this point in time, and given very different values and changing cultural sensitivities of the 21st century, to hold that position in some kind of suspicion, perhaps even odium. But in actual fact, Anglicans of this era were very conscious of that tradition. In terms of what it can say about the experience of other churches, you might say that in certain respects, it can be a cautionary tale of not being too connected to state institutions and state loyalties. I think that the history of modern Christianity is replete with examples of traditions becoming too cosy with what you might call the secular powers. We perhaps see this with Patriarch Kirill in Putin's Russia, for example. Now, I'm not saying that this relationship, that kind of relationship is uniformly bad, particularly, for example, as in the case of the Second World War, the the secular powers are actually pursuing a legitimate war, as it were. It's not a a problem per se in that regard. But that is a cautionary tale. What sort of critical distance one keeps from the state, that is important. And that applies to all traditions. Let's come, therefore, to the present day. And you've mentioned Ukraine and the cautionary tale that Anglicanism holds. Before we come on to Ukraine in particular, can you sketch some of the positions which Christians more generally take with respect to armed conflict? Yeah, this is very interesting because towards the end of my book, I reflect on how the Church of England's approach to peace and war has changed in the past 50 years. And then as the book was going to press, the invasion of Ukraine occurred. So I had to write a postscript about how that all slotted in with the afterword, as it were. But I think what's really important is to bear in mind that the just war tradition, although it seems to be taught in ethics GCSE syllabuses is pretty remote nowadays to most practicing Christians in Britain. It's a fairly kind of abstruse concept. And there has been, or there have been periods in the past 20 or 30 years, I'm thinking particularly the furore around the invasion of Iraq back in 2003 when just war was debated and disputed quite prominently in the churches. I think it rather faded from consciousness in the intervening 20 years between then and now, as it were. And I'd be tempted to say that the predominant attitude among mainstream Christians in Britain today is really a functional pacifism. That while very few Christians, relatively speaking, would say they were absolute pacifists, if you pushed them, you would find that they are more towards that position than they would to the old classic just war theory if one was to explain it to them. And I think that it's important to bear in mind that that acceptance that, for example, I mean, if we think of how 
our conversation this afternoon kicked off the whole question of how can one reconcile Christianity with armed conflict, etc. This, in many respects, emerges from an often fairly unconscious or subconscious presupposition that Christianity is pacifistic. And I would dispute that, but it's something which has been able to take hold, particularly in the nuclear era, particularly over the past few decades of relative peace particularly for societies in Western Europe, and I stress that, obviously, um, the Balkans and other parts of Europe and many, many parts of the world, unfortunately, are still blighted with war and continue to be so, even though the West was relatively insulated from that. So I would think that the predominant position is one of functional, virtual, even unconscious pacifism. There are, of course, those in the church who are consciously pacifistic. And, for example, if we think of the organization Pax Christi, or if we think of the Church of England Peace Fellowship, I think is its name. Again, these are consciously pacifistic, but I think essentially what they've been able to do is, if not necessarily expand their membership, they've been able to benefit from an environment or from a mood in which it's assumed that Christianity is pacifistic and that fundamentally the church is orientated towards pacifism that seems to be the assumption we obviously we don't have polling numbers to test people's opinions and things of that nature but my gut feeling and my observation is and from what has been said by the various churches over time over iraq and since then is we are dealing with uh, a mainstream christianity in these islands which is functionally pacifist you mentioned earlier in relation to the ukraine conflict the cultural cautionary tale of that Anglicanisms might hold out to patriarchal in terms of the cozying up with the secular authorities, living that kind of priorities of the state and, and coming close in terms of a, of a national church. What are the other insights that you might want to bring to the Ukraine conflict? And in particular, do you think the Ukraine conflict is challenging this functional pacifism? of the mainstream churches perhaps in the UK today? Yeah, I think I'd like to sharpen what I said about the functional pacifism of the mainstream churches in in the UK today by basically saying how even the term just war makes people feel uncomfortable now. I mean, Stanley Hauerwas in the United States, I think his Mennonite background, sought to popularise the term just peace because he thought the very term just war leads people down the path towards conflict too readily. So a kind of rejection of the idea of just war. Essentially, what's what's happened is that the just war tradition is itself now suspect. And faced with what we're seeing in Ukraine, which has been called out as an act of evil by the two archbishops in their letter, which was written on the day of the invasion, which is accompanied by acts of huge violence which has killed many thousands of people which has displaced millions more and which threatens starvation in the developing world because of the impact of the war on food production and even fertilizer production in this part of the world the de-skilling of the churches you might say in the language and the use of just war leaves the churches with very little to respond to in this context and while of course It's perfectly legitimate and indeed absolutely required that the church should pray for peace, should help refugees, etc. There are these first order questions 
which the churches have said very, very little about because they're unused to speaking in these terms. This is an act of evil. What should be done in practical terms to avert this? What can this tradition of the just war and its teachings stretching back 1600 years emanating from Augustine who saw the fundamental fallenness of humanity, which we see daily on our television screens, etc. What are the churches doing to re-engineer, to re-explore this tradition, to actually provide what one might say could be a Christian realistic approach to the challenges which we are facing? And I think that the war in Ukraine has really demonstrated the poverty of thinking in this department, which has characterised the churches for uh, a number of decades now. And unfortunately, it's not the churches in the West who are feeling the brunt of that. It's people in Ukraine. The other aspect, though, that I would like to highlight in relation to the war as it's unfolding and the relationship between faith and nationalism, which is clearly evident on both the Ukrainian and the Russian side in the conflict. Uh, we've seen many, many images over the past couple of weeks as we've seen the, the Western Easter celebrated and then the Orthodox Easter celebrated. You know, even the secular media has been replete with images of religious celebration among Ukrainian soldiers. And we've also seen footage of, of Russian army chaplains hearing confessions and things of that nature. I think what the war has helped to illustrate is that uncomfortable connection for us in the West between faith and nationalism. And this is to a certain extent what my own book is about. It's not seeking to denounce it. It's not seeking to lift it up. It's simply seeking to interrogate it. These are associations and emotions which people in the West felt quite strongly until quite recently. So we can't look at the war in Ukraine and say, what are these churches doing? How could they possibly do this? Because this isn't so alien to our own recent history. And we should really be informed enough to see that and appreciate it. You've held out a very clear challenge, therefore, to churches in the West as we reflect and watch the unfolding horror in Ukraine. Can we bring this back to your own personal walk, which you referred to earlier? You mentioned you're an ecumenical lay canon at Durham Cathedral. How has your own research into the sphere of faith and conflict impacted your own faith journey and your own life of worship and prayer in Durham and elsewhere? On, I think, a very fundamental level, what it's shown me is that even in the worst experiences that humanity has been through in the 20th century. There has been the spark of faith. There has been some redemptive element. And I think that that, to me, I find enormously comforting. And this study brought me into a much deeper understanding of two of the greatest Christian writers in English of the 20th century. And they are, of course, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And the Narnia Chronicles and the Lord of the Rings are basically very strongly, as we know, Christian and allegorical in terms of their inspiration. And they're born out of the experience of two young men who served as infantry officers on the Western Front, who saw and understood the presence of purposive suffering, of redemptive suffering, of fellowship, etc., and I think these are very, very powerful 
works to have emerged from that experience. They're not necessarily associated with Christianity and the experience of conflict, but they should be. We should appreciate them for what they are. So one thing that it has persuaded me of is the redemptive power of the Christian faith and also the resilience which it can provide. So I think it's brought home the importance of faith on a practical level and the importance of nuance when we think of the application of faith to very profoundly challenging ethical issues. Mike Snape, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. Thank you.